Um, so today's reading will be taken from John, where we have two, um, John 18, 19 to 24, um, and Jaden will come after and read 28 to 40. So John, 19, John 18, verse 19, and I read. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And, the, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is verse 28 to 40. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. For you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this text. Um, we just thank you for what you're showing us here um, of your son, Lord, and what he was willing to endure um, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, Lord. Um, we thank you for his focus on his mission, Lord. Um, Knowing that his kingdom was not of this world, Lord, and this wasn't the real battle he was fighting, that he was going to fight a much greater one on our behalf, Lord. So we thank you for this text. I mean, Lord, we just pray that in this time that you would just use it, uh, use it completely for your purposes, Lord. Meet us here, please. Speak to us through this, Lord. Please let your Holy Spirit be upon PT, Lord. Meet all of us where we are today. Um, so, Lord, we just thank you that we can gather like this, Lord. We just pray that you would be working here today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Beautiful. 
Good afternoon, everyone. You know, remember when it was too cold? That was like a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Just We complained about how cold it was. <clears throat> I'd like to start by saying, as I would any week, please never just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. There's always fancy people with fancy words and fancy talk, with fancy mics, with fancy stages. And we may just assume because somehow they seem to have been endowed with a tremendous amount of material that somehow that must mean that they're true. God has put that book in your laps. People have fought and died, have been tortured to death to give you that book. And we take it for granted. There's still places in the world where we're still smuggling them in so that people could have this book. Because without this book, anyone can make up anything and sooner or later someone will nod to it. And I just want to challenge you like always. Please never believe anything anyone says without comparing it to the Word of God. That is fundamental. And that would be me too, but that also includes the news and everyone else you listen to. Having said that, one of the buzz things that we face these days is this issue of social justice. And I'd like you to consider the fact as we compare it to what we're actually about to look at today. Somewhere inside of every one of us, God has placed this desire for things to be fair. And somewhere down the line, we look at things, whatever the thing is, and we realize something just doesn't look fair. We have a daughter who, by the way, cannot watch movies where someone's being treated unfairly. She has to leave the room still. A person's born of a color, a race, a gender, and somehow they're mistreated by something he or she has no choice over. Or a person makes a lifestyle or an identity or a love choice and they're mistreated and mocked and made an outcast for it and the world says that's just not fair. That person has a right to be who they are. That person has a right to love who they want to love. So then when we look at it, we realize that for everything that a person is, it has no choice over and those things they have a choice over and get, in essence, inordinately misused for it. I'd like to take you to the epitome of unfairness where the most completely innocent being in the universe was treated like the most guilty being in the universe. So you're invited to walk this with me, if you like. The trials of Jesus, the tortures of Jesus, they're really two different things. How Jesus disrupts the structures of the dusty, comfortable religions that we might find ourselves in, and how he threatens the nefarious undergirdings and underpinnings of our world regimes. And the reason I say that is, is that today I want to walk you through what you could kind of know in part. You see, the four Gospels, each giving essential contributions to the, this issue of Jesus' trials, well, a deliberate study may need to be enlisted for us to be able to put it in a linear form. In other words, how can we actually get all of the information and put it into one place? Well, I'd like to take the liberty of doing that for you today. But like always, please never just believe me. Don't just assume it true. Jesus will endure six trials. Three of them are religious and three of them are secular. And what becomes clear and evident is Jesus just does not fit into any of the camps. As a matter of fact, while no one can seem to find a legitimate charge against him on any particular place of it, everybody wants him gone. So let's start with this. And I'm going to challenge you to try to keep up. Good luck. God bless you because I have a lot of information and I don't want to, you know, I, I, will, I would happily, if we were in Chinese church, by the way, people are actually angry if you go less than six hours. Now for you, you think, I couldn't possibly imagine that. And my first thought is, wow, that would be awesome. No, since we aren't in that culture... I'm going to challenge you. Everything I'm going to pull will be basically from the four Gospels. So let's start with this. The beginning of and the outspoken part of the religious animosity starts in Matthew chapter 12. So quick flip there if you can in Matthew chapter 12. 
And it begins, interestingly enough, now obviously there's going to be antagonism, but where it becomes a bit obvious is the Bible records it. And it happens actually, if you will, at church. Now in those days, we're going to call that synagogue. Synagogue, by the way, synagogus is a Greek word. Syn, like synergy or synthetic, means together. And gogos means to assemble. So the word means the assembly place. But it was the church of the day. By the way, much like here 200 years ago, where the church was much more than a place where people just went on Sundays. It was where we had our town meetings. It was where we sat together and actually prayed because there wasn't enough rain or there was too much rain. It all depends on what part of London you're in. And Jesus has gone to a place in Capernaum, Kafer Nachum. Kafer, by the way, means village. Nachum, like the prophet Nachum, Nahum, means comfort. So ironically, this antagonism starts in the village of comfort. And it happens because Jesus showed up in a particular service where a man has a withered hand. Well, it's made clear it's his right hand for what it's worth. And Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 13, says to the man, after being questioned whether it's right to do right on the Shabbat or not, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians, it tells us actually in Mark 3, 6, same situation. Now understand, destroy doesn't just necessarily mean kill. Let's face it, we know that. Read the news. There's all kinds of ways to destroy a person. And they try several means and methods before they actually conclude the way that they have to conclude. So let me walk with that with you. For instance, Matthew chapter 9. Flip there quick. One of the methods they try to use in verse 34 is the method of rumors. Oh, how that works. The Pharisees say he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. This is one of the few places where Jesus appears a bit flabbergasted because he kind of looks and almost chuckles and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me see if I have this right. Satan is casting Satan out of people. Does that make any sense to you? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. A kingdom divided against itself will never stand. But rumors work. In America, we have homecoming. Homecoming is the big match, the big game of something we call football, but in fairness, football really is European football because we use our feet here. Uh, there we occasionally do. I think we should call that soccer because we sock each other a lot more there. Anyways, well, all of that said, and there's this big game, and during that time, there's the homecoming queen and king. That's the girl that every girl wishes she was. In other words, she's the queen of the courts. And by particular year, my senior year, the girl who was the homecoming queen was a real sweet girl, very, very sweet-natured girl, very nice girl. Uh, and really, really, to be honest, she was one of those girls, like some of you, where things just seem to happen to her benefit no matter what she does. She actually wound up being invited. She didn't even fill out an application for the university she really wanted to go to, and they invited her anyways. That was that kind of girl. So naturally, for the people who have to work harder for it, they hate her. And you know what they did? They started rumors. By the time the school year was over, that young lady was laying dead from suicide because she couldn't escape the rumors that had been started. And you know the power of the tongue. Well, the enemy knows it works, but they tried it against Jesus and it just didn't work. In John chapter 8, and I'm going to read through that, but I'll give you the quickly, they throw the two main aspects of Jesus into a place where they're convinced is a crash collision. And understand the idea here is, they know that Jesus is effervescent in mercy. But he also, we also know that Jesus is completely married to the law. 
Now, from the perspective of the people, those two things can't reconcile. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact that faith actually, and the simple statement is faith has bigger maths. How could God be completely this and completely that? And my answer is faith has bigger maths. So how can the law be completely lived out and yet there still be mercy? Well, that's what they're playing. See, now, I wonder if they could play us into it. If they knew you were a Christian, could they do this to to you? They take a woman who's caught in adultery, which, by the way, according to Levitical order, it has to be that both people have to be brought out. If a woman's caught in the very act, both people are clearly there. But where's the man? Well, clearly he's not important, because the point is this poor girl's a pawn now to try to trap Jesus. So they throw her in the temple. Whether she has clothes on or not, we do not know. But they pulled her from the very act into this situation to give her center court amongst all of the religious leaders. And of course, the first offended, that would be her husband, would be the first to cast the stone. Then it would be anybody else who was initially affected, and of course, every level uh, of circumference after that that would follow. And they say, well... The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Now please understand. They know that Jesus is not going to bend on Scripture, but they also know that Jesus is merciful to the sinner. He doesn't show mercy to the sinner at the expense of sin. Could they say that of you? Could they say that of me? But they say, you know what? That guy is not going to bend on Scripture. But on the other side of it, he's still tender-hearted towards the sinner. There was a situation, and and I won't try to bring up a lot of these because we have a lot of texts to cover and we're only bringing in the the heat of this. Where we were brought before a panel of pastors. We sort of sat up and and there was one of those inevitable questions, you know, where it's one of those questions where you put the word of of God against a situation that makes the word seem unfair. You ever see those situations? And the situation was a simple one. If there was a girl and she was badly abused or someone was badly abused in a situation is it okay to lie if somebody comes to the door and says is she there and it was interesting to listen to the different people kind of him and haw and say well you know if it's for her safety i'm sure that god will understand it becomes situational truth at that point doesn't it and unfortunately there's going to be one guy in the group and that's me that's going to just go "Mm, no We actually had just had a situation not that long before that where a woman had gotten married to somebody we practically begged her not to marry. We knew that he was trouble. Nonetheless, she married him. And on their wedding night, on their honeymoon night, he became extremely violent and she feared for her life. Ultimately, it wasn't much long after that she wound up at our house. And there was my, my wonderful wife comforting her. And she was a very dear and close friend. We had quite a bit of history together. And lo and behold, Wally shows up at the door. Where's Wally? At the door. That's where he's at. Is my wife there? What do you say? You say, yes, she is, and you're not coming in. But she's my wife. But this is my house. (laughs) Well, then why don't you take a walk with me? Okay. And up we went up the hill and around the corner, and there was two of his friends standing there, leaning on the bonnet of the car with their arms crossed. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to rough this? You're going to tell me how you're a good husband by bringing me with these guys? The whole point is this. is somewhere down the line, God's maths are bigger. And you don't compromise on Scripture. You just trust God to make it work. And that's what they did with Jesus. So he bends down and writes in the sand, as we're aware of. 
for which then there are endless amounts of books about what Jesus wrote. But they're never anywhere in Scripture. I've learned this. If the Scripture remains completely silent on an area, it's not a bad idea to keep, keep the tone. But just the same, obviously that couldn't have been a point or God would have told us. But what it did do is slow down the riotous pace at the moment. Hey, when you're in that crazy mob rules mindset, let's just be honest, you're not, really, you're not in a position to reason. You can take a bunch of individually brilliant people and stick them into a group and you know what they still become? A stupid mob. They could be brilliant individually, but you put them all together, sometimes they're just crazy without it. And ultimately he says, let he who, okay, I'll tell you what, let he who has no sin cast a stone. So hey, you know what, you're right. If you're innocent, go ahead and cast a stone. Now was there anyone there that actually qualified? Actually Jesus. But wouldn't that have been the weirdest situation? They all drop their stones and they leave and Jesus is alone with the girl and he goes, has anyone condemned you? And she goes, no one, sir. And imagine if Jesus just picked up a stone and went, bam! Well, I do. I mean, that's what he could have done. He was the innocent guy, but he didn't. But he also said, go and sin no more. But I remind you, this was done, we read, to try to trap Jesus because he was merciful Oh, but he was also faithful to the word. You go, well, how do I do that? Keep your eyes on Jesus and read the book. Watch what happens. Now look, it tells us this. Let not the wise man glory in his, in his wisdom, the rich man in his riches, the, the strong man in his strength, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the God exercising love, loving kindness, mercy, and righteousness. And in these things... I delight, says the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. God says, I delight in showing mercy. I love doing that. Well, if you can't start it with a rumor and you can't kill it with a rumor and you can't do it by pitting him against the law, well, then you can try to disqualify him. Luke chapter 5, boom, you're there. And Luke chapter 5, verse 30. The scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Obviously, you're in no position to change the world. In John 8, 13, the Pharisees say to Jesus, You bear witness of yourself, so therefore your witness is not true. Well, you can ask those in a court of law about whether people have to bear witness of themselves by the way they do, and they're under oath to tell the truth. So if you can't disqualify him, you can't put mercy against the law against him, you can't start him with rumors, you could try to trap him with his words. In Matthew twenty-two fifteen, you can flip there quickly. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Remember, that's the whole, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And I really do love what Jesus says. He goes, show me a denarius. Which, by the way, nobody was supposed to have because that was Gentile money in the, in the temple. Somebody who was actually carrying that was at that moment carrying contraband in the temple. But it didn't seem like anyone had a problem whipping one of those out, and so out it went. And he goes, let me ask you, this has an image on it. Whose image is this made in? Or well, like Caesar. And you can see Jesus going, well then, I guess this belongs to Caesar, doesn't it? The issue isn't giving this thing to Caesar. 
He says, you need to give God what belongs to God. Well, look at the, the format he set up. If it has his image, it belongs to him. So who is made in the image of God? You are. And understand what he's saying is, you do understand that this particular coin isn't the problem. Well, it may be the problem for you, but the problem is actually that this was made in Caesar's image, it belongs to him, but you're made in God's image and he, you belong to him and you should be giving him what's rightly due. You realize God's greatest currency is you. You do realize that, right? So they try to trap them. And you know, these same things are going to happen to you. You know that. Ultimately, what they'll try to do is they'll try to threaten them and threaten others. In John 9.22, it reads, Remember the man who was born blind that was actually then given sight? God had to do so much more than just actually lay hands on a guy because his eyeballs weren't working. Fairly likely he either didn't have them or whatever the case is, they had never grown to the place where they had functioned. But I'd like you to consider... Your eyes are only, your eyeballs are only part of your vision faculty. You're aware of that, right? You realize that somewhere down the line, those eyes have to interpret that information, and in your brain is a library that it has to access every time you see something. It accesses in regards to threat levels. It accesses in regards to familiarity. It accesses in regards to understanding. You see someone's face and you look, and let's face it, you're walking down the street in Camden. Now that's going to, you could go into overload there. And you're actually seeing all kinds of fun and funky things. And that's part of the fun of Camden. And you walk through those things. The question is, your, as your eyes are scanning this, do, 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 threat, no, no, do, 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 just crazy guy, but he's over there. Do, 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 do. I mean, you get that. But what if you've never seen anything? How do you explain purple or a rainbow to a person that's never seen? They have no frame of reference for that whatsoever. So when Jesus has to restore this guy's sight, he has to do so much more than give him eyeballs. He has to put that decoder in and the library back there so we can look at something and go, oh, you're that. That dog's no threat. That, okay, that one is. I mean, he has to have all that information encoded all at the same time. Imagine that download. But then he becomes a real problem. And this I want to warn you. When God changes your life, you're a threat. I've learned the world doesn't have a problem with you becoming a Christian until you become a real one. Because when you become a real one, you are a threat. And you become light of the world, you are a threat to darkness. Oh yeah, go ahead and go ahead and sit in your dusty old whatever and kind of sing a couple songs around Christmas and Easter. It's part of our culture. We're cool with it. You know, it's kind of like there's baby Jesus and mince pies and a roast and we're happy. But you want to tell them they need to change and Jesus wants to save you, now you're a problem. Unless, of course, they're drowning. They just don't know it. So this man gets called to the carpet. They crawl up into his grill and they're like, so don't tell me, how did, you, how did he heal you? Because it was a Sabbath. Understand, they missed the miracle for the method. And ah, oh, what happened? Wow, he made mud, he took mud, he spit, made mud, and he stuck it on my eyes, and then I could see. He told me to wash. I could see. So he made mud, that's work. He laid his hands on you, that was healing, that's work. And that's all they're trying to figure out is whether he's breaking the Sabbath here, and they're like trying to figure out how many ways he did. Isn't that crazy? Finally, they pull in his parents. Because they're like, there's just no possible way. And if you've ever been in a court of law, this is genuinely one of the things they try to do to disqualify a witness. They show that they actually genuinely are either not in a faculty to be able to give you honest information. Like, they're just crazy. They ain't giving you the real thing. Or they're just lying. Or they're actually not really the person they say they are. So they want to validate. They bring in their parents. You know what the parents, this guy's parents do? 
they bail on them. Imagine the first time you see your parents, visually, the first time you see your parents, and you see shame on their faces, because they're, they're, and then what they say is, you better ask him, he's of age. In other words, leave me out of this. That's the first face you want to see of your parents, is them in fear. And this is why it says it. It says in John 9.22, the parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. That's how they threatened. You're kicked out of church if you start talking about that Jesus. The one that changes lives. Well, it didn't work. So the rumors, all the disqualification rules, none of it seems to work. All the threats, so finally there's only one thing left. John 11, go there. And I remind you, these are the law enforcers. In John 11... They have a meeting because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And in verse 48, this private meetings that had begun, I remind you, when they started figuring out how to destroy him and realized they couldn't destroy him any way other than literally, say this in verse 48. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Wouldn't that be nice? Could you imagine if the world would leave you alone? that the whole world would believe, I wish that were true. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, do you realize how much we have to lose if this Jesus thing really becomes the epidemic it has the potential to become? It appears to me that the enemy seems to know this more than Christians do. Have you noticed that? He sure spends an awful lot of time trying to keep us quiet. And I don't think you even realize why. Because if this Jesus, this real biblical Jesus thing catches on, the whole world is going to be changed. And I want to ache for that. The high priest, seeing this particular argument, his name is Caiaphas, which, by the way, is Greek for cutie, uh, for what it's worth. Name your kid that. Uh, in verse 50, actually verse 49, it says, Then one of them, Caiaphas being the high priest that year, says to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. And that the whole nation should perish. You realize that if Rome has a problem with us, we can put all of that problem on one person and let Rome beat this guy to death and we both win for it? That all of the sins of the nation can be laid on one person. And it says, by the way, he prophesied that, by the way, not even realizing what in the world he was saying. Verse 52, it says, From not only in this nation only, but that he would gather together in one all the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, verse 53, then from that day on they plotted to put him from death. Up to that point, they've been trying to destroy him every other way, and it hasn't worked. But now it's like, there's only thing thing left to do. We've got to kill this guy. We just got to kill him. But I want to warn you, when Jesus has touched and changed your life, you're going to be a threat too. That Lazarus he raised from the dead in John chapter 12, flip there, you're close. Verse 10. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You really do realize that if you're going to try to shut down Jesus, everyone that looks like him is going to be a threat. Think about how what Paul understood. He understood both ends of that sword. He swung it at other people and then had it swung at him. So they plot the subterfuge. 
I'll pick this up a little bit, but I remind you it's being recorded. So I'll go a little quicker for the sake of time. Prayerfully, I won't sacrifice any clarity for it. They plan to... The rumors, the word games, the law-defying scenarios, the threats, they're all defeated. So it says, by the way, in Matthew 26, verse 3, the chief priests and the scribes, the elders and the people assembled at the palace of the high priest. Do you realize that word sounds weird to you, I hope? Because it does to me, the palace of the high priest. You're kind of like, you know, there's the people, there's the people, and there's the palace. Yeah, that belongs to, you know, to the priest. Okay. His name is Cutie, I remind you. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, they knew that Jesus was a local favorite. And they realized if they arrest him in public, they're going to they're gonna have to deal with the crowd now. But a freshly rebuked Jew, Judas, I remind you, who had rebuked Mary over anointing Jesus' feet, and Jesus is the one time that said, leave her alone. Boy, you don't want to be there. Well, now he inserts himself. And in Matthew twenty six fifteen, he says to them, he comes to those same people. Remember, they're kind of going, well, I don't know when we're going to do this, but we obviously need to do this. This guy's a threat and we can't seem to shut him down. The only thing left to do is to kill him, but we're going to have to do it quietly, which is a real problem because every time that guy shows up, millions of people seem to show up. How do we get him privately? And as they're debating over the situation, the guy kind of, hey, how much will you give me if I lead you to him privately? And you can imagine them looking at each other with that knowing look, going, I think we have our answer. I'll tell you what, we'll give you 40 pieces of silver. That's interesting, because that's the same price as a slave, and it's the same price that Joseph, by the way, was handed over by his brothers in the book of Genesis. It's never changed. Imagine that Jesus was handed over for the price of a slave. You know what that tells me? That at least in the sight of God, while all this happens, and he actually tells us about the 30 pieces of silver being thrown and made of potter's field, all of that's prophesied in the Old Testament. That somehow on all that, Jesus still saw, even the person that would have been considered the lowest slave, still a human being, and still of that same precious value as himself as he walked the earth. So now they have their man. They have an inside, and Jesus had often met in the garden with these guys so that Judas would know where to take them when it was just them privately. And now they only have to deal with a small group of ragtag Galileans. Are you following me? We've seen the escalation, but now Jesus gets arrested. And at that point, he goes through his trials. Now I remind you, we're recording this because again, I'm going to go quickly, but I'd like you to listen to 10, what I would call the 10 commandments of Jewish jurisprudence. He was fundamental to never convict and to kill an innocent person because God tells us there are seven things the Lord hates, eight that he detests, and it says a haughty look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. This is fundamental to him. So listen to these rules quickly. The full counsel must be at every proceeding. You can't have partial counsels. It can never be done at night. There has to be a very clear and set charge prior there must be a completely unanimous decision. By the way, for what it's worth, Luke 22, verses 50 to 52 tells us about Joseph of Arimathea, and we read that he had not consented to their, to their deed. There must be at least an entire full night, this is one of the reasons it can't be met at night, there must be an entire full night given over for what they call a night of mercy, just in case they've missed something. One false witness constitutes a mistrial. And you do know that the biblical standard is 
that if a man gives false witness, whatever the punishment would have been now gets inflicted on the false witness, that'll shut up a few people. There's no pre-prescribed verdict. There are no private interviews. There must be no previous excuse, or any previous experience with the accused versus the judges. And there must be no relationship between the accused and the judges. Can you find any one of these things that was not transgressed on that night? The fact that they met at night starts the whole process, doesn't it? You're like, wait a minute, this can't happen at night and it needs to be a full council. No private interviews? Well, look at our text. This is what it says now. Our trial number one, Annas. It says this. In John 18, 13, it says, Then Jesus was being bound, was led away to Annas. Who in the world is Annas? Annas, for what it's worth, was the high priest under Quirinius, deposed by Valerius Gratus. He was from 6 to 15 AD. But think of him, and this is kind of a fun play on words, as the godfather. Because that guy has at least five more sons, each playing that role. They're all puppets. Eliezer ben Anas in 16 to 17. Jonathan, his son, 36-37, and brought back in 44. Theophilus in 37-41. to Matthias in 42-43. to And then arguably, Arrhenius, who was either his son or grandson in 63. But in the midst of all of those people he keeps, he has one other guy that marries into the family. Cutie. Caiaphas. We read he's the son-in-law to Annas. So God actually tells us, though there is a figurehead, there's somebody pulling the strings. There is somebody that you can look at and say, that's the person you put on a stamp. But that's not necessarily the person making the rules. Now, dare I say, is this a dangerous thing to say? We have a wonderful figurehead. I actually really, really am very thankful for our queen. I'm thankful for her. And I don't know everything about her, but I do know this. She seems to be a woman of integrity, of honor, and commitment. And she seems to be somebody that when she speaks about Christmas, I don't know, Jesus gets brought up. When she speaks about Easter, the resurrection gets brought up. How refreshing is that? But in all fairness, she's not making the laws. There, are, there is a whole other institution designed for that purpose. Well, consider the fact that it would be like that, except in the end of it all, she had final say and could ax anything she wanted to. That was Annas. And Caiaphas was under his employ, if you will. Even though Caiaphas, for what it was worth, was actually deposed. Uh, it was actually brought in by the guy that deposed his father-in-law, and he was removed later on by Vitellius. But now Jesus is led privately to Annas. Do you remember how one of those things is no private interviews? But they have no set charge. So Annas brings him in and he asks him a couple questions. Now look at verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about, and his disciple, about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world and also taught, always taught in synagogues and the temple where the Jews meet and in secret I said nothing. Do you see the job in that? Jesus knows it's against the law, this meeting, and he's going, oh, we're having this private meeting and you're asking me questions in private, but everything I said was in public. We really need to be having this meeting. So what happens? They smack him. By the way, one of those rules was that you are not allowed to inflict any punishment without a verdict. So as a result of that, he's like, hey, if I said anything evil, why are you hitting me? If I haven't. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, and that's our second one. 
The second one, by the way, for what it's worth, and this is why we bounce back and forth, because in the story in John, it bounces between that and Peter's denial, and then the next trial and Peter's denial. And since we went through Peter's denial last week, I thought we'd bring this up. This, And so here's the idea. First, so let's do this. There's six trials. The first one is Annas. Can you say Annas? That's private, right? Second one, it says, then they let him bound to Caiaphas. I say Caiaphas. So what's the first one? What's the second one? You with me so far? Caiaphas has a small council with him now, which again, I remind you, is still also against the law. And it says, for what it's worth, in the simplest sense, I remind you, the high priest is a Sadducee who doesn't believe in anything he can't see and thinks the most important thing about Judaism is the temple. But listen to Mark chapter 14, verse 56 during this trial. Many false witnesses came against him, but even their testimonies did not agree. Could you imagine sitting in that alarm room? Excuse me, hold on. One false witness constitutes a mistrial. And here's the crazy part. One guy says one thing, another guy says another. They obviously don't disagree. And you know what they do? They turn to Jesus and say, so what do you have to say about this? What, what can you say? Can I say, you're out of order. I mean, what would you say? You're in contempt. How unfair. They said, well, I put you on the rail. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. But they're like, you know what they say? Well, oh, wait a minute. We heard that he said he'd t- destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And for the high priest, that's as bad as it gets. Imagine if the, the greatest thing to you as a, as a Londoner would be Big Ben, the clock tower. Now, obviously it's not. There are many beautiful things about this country and wonderful things about London. And if you like Big Ben, that's great. But imagine, if you will, then someone's like, well, he said he was going to blow up Big Ben. They're like, oh, that's it. He deserves to die. Luke twenty-two sixty-six tells us our third one. What's the first trial? What's the second? Caiaphas and small council. Now it tells us this. In Luke 22, verse 66, as soon as it was day. So that tells us it's a third trial. The elders of the people, both chief priests, scribes, came together and led them into their council. Now we have the full council. But there's no night given now, is there? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And he says, look, if I tell you what's the difference, you're not going to believe. But if I also ask you, you'll by no means answer me or let me go. So therefore, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand in the power of God. And they said, wait a minute, so you're the Son of God? And he said, and by the way, in Hebrew... And, and how many of you in here speak another language other than English? Okay, let me ask you. Some of them are inflective. And what I mean by that is the difference between a question and a statement is just how you say it. How many of your languages are like that? It's like that in, is it in Portuguese, is it really? And in Yoruba. Okay, well, sweet. There you go. Well, here's the situation. It's the same in Hebrew. So, you're a king. And the idea of it is, oh, so you're the son of God. And what he's saying is, you're the son of God? And he said, man, you said it. Does that make sense? Well, you rightly say it. You, by the way, you said it, and you're right. And they're like, well, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own mouth. Now let me ask you, did they have a set charge before they entered in there? 
They had no set charge. That's why they did the private interview and they didn't get anywhere with that. Then they tried Caiaphas and they didn't get anywhere with that. And finally they just say, keep talking until you get yourself in trouble. Did he have any previous experience with his accusers and with the judges and with everyone else? Oh, he had all kinds of experience with them and none of it was good. Was there a pre-prescribed verdict before he showed up? Oh yeah, they wanted him dead. They just had to figure out how to try to make it look like this was fair. False witnesses constituted a mistrial. Oh, they were rife with false witnesses. You realize every single one of those Ten Commandments were broken. Now, listen, now all of a sudden they're like, well, here's the problem. Since 7 AD, it tells us that Caponius, I was born in Chicago, that's one of the easiest names for me to remember, Caponius um, removed the right of capital punishment from 7 AD. So they could not legally kill anyone. Oh, they killed people anyways. For instance, Stephen, we know of, for instance, in the book of Acts. But they had to actually make it Roman. Which, by the way, is exactly how Jesus said he was going to die anyways. And it goes all the way back a thousand years before that. 400 to 600 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Syrophoenicians. Where in Psalm 22, it talks about it in detail, the type of death that a person... Where it says things like, they pierce my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones and my heart melts like wax within me. That entire experience we'll talk about next week. But please, hear me, hear me in this. Now Pilate shows up, and this is what we read in Matthew 27, verse 18. It says that Pilate knew it was because of envy they handed him over. In other words, he looks at him and goes, you guys are jelly. That's what he's saying. In John chapter 18, verse 28, it says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves would not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled. See, they couldn't step in a Gentile's house. Isn't this the ironic thing? They didn't want to actually disqualify themselves from actually being able to have the Passover while they're putting God on trial to have him killed. Is that a bit ironic? So Pilate's a bit grumpy. It's early morning and he doesn't want to have to go to work that early. And Pilate comes over and he goes, Why are you here? And they say, well, listen, and there's a thing called Capitosia Benevolentiae. That's not easy for anyone to say. Uh, and what it means is you sort of suck up to a person before you actually nail them with the real information. And he's like, oh, great and almost wonderful. Happens all the way through the book of Acts. Well, understanding this, they're like, listen, if this guy wasn't so much trouble, we certainly wouldn't be bothering you, old Mr. Cool Pilot. Now, please understand something. Let me, let me kind of create a little bit of the uh, dynamic here. We're almost done. Believe it or not, the next three are rather quick. Pilate only rules for 10 years, 26 to 36 AD. And he was brought in because of the powder keg of Israel. See, Israel had a couple problems as far as the Roman Empire was. One is they would not have a statue. See, that whole trip to Babylon really cured a lot of things, and that was one of them. God's like, you want idols? Let's show you what the idols really look like. They send them, they're like, okay, we're done. We're no more of that. And even people like Josephus would actually talk about how people marveled at two specific things in Jerusalem. One is there was a day of the week nobody worked. Could you believe that? It's like the whole town shut down. And the other is, you have a temple in which you will not find a single statue. Here's this is the strangest thing I ever saw. Now consider this. Pilate comes in and he knows he's got a group of people that are in essence untamable. So when he shows up, he wants to show himself a friend of Caesar. So how does he do it? He brings a bust of Caesar. You know, that's one of those things people put on the end of their piano 
It's like from the, you know, that kind of thing with the head. And uh, they bring it and he puts it up actually in the Antonio Fortress. You have the temple and on the northeast corner of it is the Antonio Fortress. That's where the Romans watch to make sure no trouble is being caused. And he puts it right up at the top and the people go mental. Now, he does what most traditional politicians do. He heads over to his palace, which happens to be in Caesarea. And as he shows up there, basically people, they just have this sit-in. They're all over his lawn. So you think that's a new idea? Think that came in the 60s? Oh, no, that was way before that. That was in the 20s, as in 20 AD, 26 AD. Now, what happens is ultimately he's got all these people strewn out in his lawn refusing to eat, and they're all passing out. Meanwhile, he's like entertaining dignitaries, and they're like, hey, what's up with your lawn? And he's like, oh, those people, that's lawn ornaments, you know? And, I mean, ultimately, this is, this is looking bad. So he's like, all right, I'll tell you what. And he goes and he meets with them, and he goes, I'll tell you what. This coming, I'll tell you when, this is a specific day, and on this specific day, let's hear you out. You've gained my audience. You guys all assemble, and this is where we're going to assemble in the marketplace. And I'm going to go and hear your case. So he comes in all of his pomp and grandeur, all these people show up. And as all these people show up, he tells us what a good guy would do. He brings in the army and surrounds them, and he says, I'm going to give you two choices. Go home, or go dead. And the people say, we would rather die than transgress the law of God. Do you think anybody wants to, answer, wants to enter into office by killing hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people? doesn't look so good. So Pilate goes with his tail between his legs and tells him to go home and he takes down the bus. For ten years, he's been trying to play this game. As well. Ultimately, he will. So somewhere deep, you know, sort of in the two-thirds mark is where we're at with Jesus in this. And understand, he knows he's a bit of a puppet. He's just basically trying not to rock the boat. Is that fair? But obviously he's fed up. And he knows the religious leaders are like this. So he's like, what is your problem? Well, this guy, he's the problem. He doesn't want people to pay taxes to Caesar and all this. So ultimately, what happens is he asks him, he goes, wait a minute. So he pulls him aside and he goes, what's your deal? Now again, pardon the loose paraphrase, but for the sake of clarity. And Jesus goes, look it. My kingdom's not of this world. He goes, oh, so you're, you're a king. Look, my kingdom's not of this world because if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Hear that again. My kingdom's not of this world because if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Do you realize how many times Christianity, and, well, and certainly infinitely other religions, have been spending their time fighting to take over land when God says, my kingdom, this is not about fighting through fleshly means. And we realize when we try to do that and we go out each other's throats in the name of Jesus, we are not representing the person who raised the dead. And Jesus looks and he's like, don't expect that from my guys. And you want to blame things? What about the inquisitions? What about the horrible abuses? And my answer is, they're horrible abuses. You know what? Can I just be blunt because I'm American? Well, I'm Praterican now, right? But just to say, you know, look at people have abused love and called it lust and rape and all kinds of other things, but people still want to get married. They still want to fall in love, even though there have been horrible misrepresentations of it because there's a hunger inside. You know, the shadow proves the sunshine. You can't have a shadow without something to cast it. And misrepresentations are always going to be there. But that's no excuse for us to act like that. So please hear me in this. Those are wicked abuses. Well, how could a loving God let those things happen? 
Because, to be honest, some of those people will convert. And he doesn't want them going to hell either. He doesn't want anyone going to hell. And before you cast that stone, you might want to consider where you've been. Because when I look and I think, well, you know what, I've been, I know what it's like to be a jerk. Praise God, Jesus dies for jerks. Are you humble enough to accept the fact that you can get in that queue? So Pilate answers him. You know what he does? He goes back and he says, I find no fault. But then he hears this. Oh, wait a minute. You're from Galilee? Now, the Roman standard is this, by the way. And now, by the way, we have have our four. Remember what our first trial was? Annas and private. Second, Caiaphas, small council. Third one, the council. That's full council. The fourth one, Pilate. He realizes that Jesus is from Galilee. Now, understand, in Roman tribunals, you're allowed to actually try a crime in one of two places. The place you come from or the place where the crime was committed. Here's the problem. He can't seem to find a crime. So the only thing he can do at this point is go where he came from. Oh, you're from Galilee. That's Herod in Antipas' area. Ship it off to that guy who happens to be in town in the Antonia Fortress. So it's a very small trip. Y'all with me? Now, what does tell us, by the way, and this is exclusive to the Gospel of Luke, the whole story of, of Herod, that Herod was really excited to see Jesus. And the reason Herod was excited to see Jesus is because he heard he'd done all these miracles. But it also said that Pilate and Herod were enemies before this. I mean, they were competing over political landscapes. So I'd like you to consider the fact. Dump them off with your enemy. Yeah, this is win-win. You deal with this guy I don't know what to do with and let the Jewish people hate you. Perfect. Win-win. Luke 23.8 says this, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard about the many things about him and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. You know, it's after all, you don't have cable, there's no satellite, you have no phone to watch. And it's like you have to bring crazy people and miracle makers, right? And so you're like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be the highlight of my week. I mean, you know, you can see him, he's like, I saw that like England versus Belgium match. No, I need something real to watch. Anyways, so he questioned with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Herod has the dubious title of being the one person for whom Jesus had nothing to say. No matter what he asked, Jesus didn't answer a word. So you know what it is? Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. We'll talk about that next week. Arrayed him with a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So, first trial? And private. Second? And small court. Third? Full council. Fourth? Pilate. Fifth? Herod. Sixth? Pilate. So, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. He sends him back to Pilate. And listen, this is what Pilate says. Luke 23, verses 13. Well, verse 14. He said to him, You've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people and indeed I've examined him in your presence and I've found no fault with this man concerning those things on which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent him back with him, sent him back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done for or done by him. Therefore, I will chastise him and release him. Do you hear how weird that statement is? By the way, it does say that when Herod sends him back, that Herod and Pilate became friends. You know what makes friends often? A common enemy. You learn that. Imagine Herod's like, oh, you've got to deal with those people. Oh, wait, hey. And you can see him going, yeah, tell me about it. Right? He's like, well, he's your problem. All right, man. Thanks, bro. Well, that's kind of the idea. So listen to what he says. He says, you know what? In the Roman court, I looked at it, and there's nothing. There's nothing to punish him for. And then I sent him to Herod, second opinion, and Herod's like, 
It's nothing to punish him for. So I said, Max, so you know what? He's completely innocent, so I'm going to beat him silly and then send him back to you. Wait a minute, what? How does that work? He's completely innocent, so let's just beat him up and send him home. Do you know why he wants to do that? He's trying to do that because maybe that'll be enough to appease these people so they can actually lay off. But the problem is they want him dead. They've already concluded he needed to die, so they have to play this out. Does that make sense? But let me just kind of bring this around to close in all of this. You need to realize something. I need to realize something. That there is not a person in all of this that actually says he's guilty. Listen, so you know that I'm not making this up. In Matthew chapter 27, Judas, after finding out Jesus has been murdered, actually goes back repentant. And he says this in Matthew 27.4. Don't believe me, look at it yourself. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas called him innocent. And the council that declared him, you know what they say? And they said, what is that to us? You see, it, you see to it. Do you know what they just said? They said, so what? This man said, this guy's completely innocent. And you know what they said? So what? They did not say, shut up, you're lying. The council called him innocent. Judas called him innocent. Pilate, clearly on three occasions, called him innocent. Herod called him innocent too. He's like, you know, none of us actually think he has anything. And just to make it worse, you know that if Pilate's head's not going to be turned by Pilate's heart, who's going to turn Pilate's head? Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, <laughs> that's who, sent to him and said, have nothing to do with this just innocent man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Wow, God had to bring that in. Pilate, Herod, Judas, the council, Pilate's wife. Finally, the man at the cross as Jesus dies in Luke twenty three forty seven says this, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So how does somebody this innocent get killed like the worst of criminals? You do realize that's the problem here, right? Hear me on this. Jesus Born the Son of God. But He made a love choice. And He made a love choice, and the love choice was you and was me. To love us, to redeem us, to save us. He chose you and me as the object of love, and He was killed for that. Where's the outrage? Where's the outrage when you say, this is not fair, that guy has a right to love anyone that he wants to love. And everyone goes, no, you can't do that. Kill this guy. Where's the outrage to that? Because the religious world wouldn't have him. The secular world wouldn't accept him. The question is, will I? Where's the fairness in that? Because the most innocent person is killed like the guiltiest of villains. Is that unfair? Unfair doesn't even begin to tag it. It is the antithesis of fair. You know what it's called? It's called grace. Because though the most innocent person was killed like the guiltiest of villains the guiltiest of villains could go set free. And that's me and you. Because Pilate even gives him a choice. Now there's a guy, and he's already been busted, by the way, in all four Gospels, what it tells us then is he's been guilty of murder and guilty of thievery, and he was guilty of insurrection. He was a rebellious, murderous, selfish man. And we've already busted him for it. And he led others into it. And they say, well, that's the one we want set free. The totally innocent guy goes and gets murdered, so the totally guilty guy goes free. That's the story of grace. And to make it better, his name. Bar Abbas. Bar 
like bar mitzvah means son. Abba means father. The totally guilty, rebellious, selfish, murderous man gets set free and his name is Son of the Father. Now listen. What would be the most unreasonable, the most unjust, is to have such a suffering, tormented, tortured situation that has been done exclusively to set me and you free, declare me innocent, emancipate me, and deny it to try to put this insurmountable guilt debt back on myself to try to pay it. That would be unfair. How could anyone reasonable do that? How could anybody say, God, you went through all of this and I could deny the facts and try to pretend like you never existed or whatever, but in the end of it all, there you are paying that price. Who in the garden begged that if there be another way, anyone else to pay that debt? But let me ask, even if God allowed every other way, though there isn't, nobody else volunteered to pay your debt. Nobody else stepped forward and said, you're guilty and I'll take care of that. Only Jesus. You willing to come join with me in the Brigade of Grace where our march is on our knees in praise and our banner over us is love? Because my God sent His Son tempted in every way yet without sin. Perfect and pure, spotless like the sacrificial Passover lambs that were being slaughtered. Because we deserved the punishment He had. And as we pray, I just want to ask, have you accepted that? Have you accepted that gift? Are you still trying to pay a debt that you can't fully pay? Assuming somehow God will wash away the remainder? When God actually sent His Son to pay the whole? That's the choice you need to make. But if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as we go to prayer, let me ask, are you willing to tell people to let Him know that this is what God did for you? Because that's how important you are to Him. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I want to thank you so much for this text. I mean, we've gone through so, so much. From the growing antagonism of a religious world that really doesn't want to fit you in because they'd rather make it a culture of tradition. To the trials. The private Annas. The small council of Caiaphas. The full council. Pilate and Herod and Pilate all declaring you innocent in one way or another. But yet in all of this, you tell us that it was somehow in all of this your pleasure to bruise him, not because the bruising was the pleasure, but because you have laid upon him the sins and iniquities of us all, and by his stripes were healed. And I pray today that we get a newfound gratitude for what you've done. Father, as the one who watched all this injustice, and Jesus, as you who endured it. And for every social injustice that's out there, where we believe people are equal, and that everyone has a right to get saved, everyone has a right to be reinvented by you, 
And for those who say that, that you must accept them for who they are and they don't have no interest in changing, they need to realize that they need to be willing to accept you for who you are. Lord of all, who willingly took all of that horrible torture so that we could be yours. And so I just pray today for every one of us, God, that you would reignite in our hearts a newfound gratitude. And for those who have made claim to know you, who have accepted that gift of not only the death at the cross, but the resurrection so we could become new creations, to let the old die so that you would raise up an infinitely better thing in each of us. Give us that faith to willingly and joyfully let you be the architect of our reinvention. And may that change be one with no compromise to your scriptures and yet with full love for the broken world around us. And though the world may still play the rumors, the world may still try through intrigue and try to catch us in some form of statement, Lord, let us not back down. Let us be bold and be willing to say the truth is the truth. And let every man be a liar. Your truth is still going to be true. But here in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you've not actually accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, if you're not sure you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not asking if you've gone to church. I'm not asking if you've sang a song or read a verse. I'm not asking if you've been in ministry. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ on your behalf? It'd be like saying you're married because you went out with someone on a date once. Somewhere down the line, you accept that gift and you make a commitment to hand your life over. And if you're not sure you've ever done that, I'd like to give you the privilege, the dignity of that choice right now. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of that prayer, if you agree with it, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. I claim that prayer as my own. So be it in my own life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm guilty before you in my own life. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong, intended wrong. And that guilt must be punished if you're to be a righteous judge. So either you could punish me Or in your great grace, you sent Jesus to come down, to die on the cross so that all of those things could be punished. To be buried in the tomb. And when he resurrected, they could stay permanently buried and offer me a new life of innocence and purity in you. And you've done all the work. And the only thing you've done, that's the only thing you've left in my hands is the choice so that I have the dignity of actually saying yes to this offer. And I may not understand everything, but I do recognize that I need to say yes to that offer. And so today, as sure as my heart is beating, I say yes. I say yes to your payment on my behalf. I say yes to your salvation, your purity. And I say yes to giving you the rights to my life to rebuild it from the ground up with you as my foundation. Have me now. Make me yours. I give my life to you now, confessing Jesus as my Lord and Savior.
And in His name I pray. And if you agree with that prayer today, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh Lord, You've heard the amens. You've heard us say it today. And I pray that now as we have communion, that we would do so in great joy. So Lord, now, for those who have said yes, You tell us that all Your angels in heaven rejoice. Let them hear that for just a moment. That it would make the crowds in Sochi and other places in Russia sound like but a dribble of a voice in comparison. Because the angels in heaven, your angels, know how much joy it brings you when one person says yes to you. Nonetheless, more. So Lord, I just pray now, prepare our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.